morning, late morning, I guess it is. Um, I'm excited to have our guest speaker today. Um, this is, we're going to be listening to um, Ernest Gray talk about the way language functions as a window to his world. That's the title of the talk. And just a little bit about Ernest. Um, he is a PhD student in linguistics and New Testament studies. Um, he's also a full-time professor and a part-time pastor. Um, so he'll be talking about himself as well as talking about linguistics and how language serves as a window into culture and help us make sense of our world. So I'd like you to welcome Mr. Ernest Gray. Can you hear me okay? Are you picking me up now? Well, thanks for having me, Amy. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you for um, creating a time for me to come and share uh, these thoughts and uh, some, of my, some, of the, um, some of the insights into my own personal world, my own personal story. Um, as was just indicated, my name is Ernest Gray. And I am a um, full-time professor. Uh, I teach religious studies at a Bible college in downtown Chicago. And uh, I'm currently a PhD student in New Testament and linguistics at McMaster uh, Divinity College in Hamilton, Ontario. You're like, how does that work? Well, I kind of uh, do both. I kind of live in two worlds. I live in Chicago, but I was commuting and continue very infrequently now. I commute from Chicago to Toronto. I was doing that on a weekly basis. I'm right now actually grateful to be in my, um, on sabbatical so that I can make a little bit more progress uh, toward earning that PhD. Uh, so right now I'm in the comprehensive exam stage. For those of you who kind of know what that's like, it's just read a bunch of books and write an exam um, after you've read them all. Uh, so I'm no shorter, there's no, there's no shorter busyness for me as, we, as, I, as I stand here. Uh, and on the other hand, and the other thing that I do is I also um, pastor a small church on the west side of Chicago uh, in West Garfield Park, um, Keystone Baptist Church. I'm the senior pastor there, and um, I'm grateful to be able to serve that community because uh, it's one of those communities that's uh, too important uh, to neglect, and it's, I serve a church that's too important to fail. So how did I get to this place? How did I come about, uh, how did I arrive at these two destinations? How did I get involved in these two areas of life? Uh, they were never really um, on my outlook. They were never really two aspects that I thought I saw myself doing. But nevertheless, and considering the nature of our, and the out, and of our discussion and the, and the outcome of what I hope to provide you as the student, um, I stand here before you just a tad bit nervous. I've never d done a talk kind of like this before. Although a few weeks ago I was privileged to share some of what I will share with you today during the Human Library event hosted by Troy and others that were able to participate. The unique experience and interaction with the students a few weeks ago that I had uh, was very rewarding and uh, I was very, very grateful for the students that were able to attend uh, my talk. It was for this reason that I was approached by Professor Amy Williamson as well to come and share that story again. That's the, that will be the bulk of my discussion today, will be my own personal story um, and how um, I've arrived at this place through the ideas and the stick to of perseverance. And um, hopefully at the out, uh, at the, as, I sh as I conclude that story, 
as I conclude sharing with you that story, I hope to apply some of what I've been actually gleaning in my own PhD studies to my own story to help you comprehend how language can function um, and accomplish various things. So then, um, at the end of our time today, I will pause for questions. Uh, I will entertain your inquiries uh, to hopefully serve as a resource to you, an example, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, an example of uh, perseverance. Okay? As I indicated, whereas I don't know if it was shared, I can't recall, I didn't hear the very outset there, but I grew up in the lower middle class section of the southern suburb of Chicago, a little town called University Park. And like most individuals, um, I never, growing up, I never really took inventory of the environment and how it compared against other environments. I never took inventory of my own personal environment because for me it was no, what was normal. It was the only environment I knew. Nevertheless, there were things, there were currents that were sweeping below the surface of our community that were there, though I was not aware of them. Racial bias, economic disparity, systemic failures in the broader community were far from my mind because, again, this was the only neighborhood that I knew. This does not mean that they did not exist. Like a current that lulls beneath the surface, I can look back now and see that they did exist, sweeping through the neighborhood, always present at times, even carrying off those who struggled to adjust. So I can recall the sights and sounds of my upbringing. I can recall the small, um, the small neighborhood that I resided in. And um, when I look back now, I recognize that there, were, there was a saga of strife in my personal family history. Strife. We like to call it sometimes dysfunction. To this day, I'm uncertain, um, well, that dysfunction took a couple of forms. It is a story of mental illness, trauma, and pain characterized, uh, these are aspects that characterize my own upbringing. My father was and continues to struggle with alcoholism frequent nights of rage or alcohol-induced uh, squabbles made for difficult days at school the following day. To this day, I'm uncertain as he's able to come to terms with his own personal disease. On the other hand, my mother, um, at the age of 22 or 23, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Her life has been one filled with frequent hospitalizations and consistent medication. Though her difficulty at times seemed more debilitating than my father's due to her sometimes stints in the hospital, um, time away from home, I would suggest that later on in life I find my father's disease to be far more pervasive. Uh, for though her disease incapacitated her for sometimes, maybe times, oftentimes weeks, the long-term effect of my father's disease, that of mental or that of alcoholism, are far more long-standing and devastating. So the life I've lived hasn't been full of ease. And perhaps it resonates with some of you. Perhaps this is uh, some, of, some of these details that I divulge to you. Characterize your own story. If not yours, then you are able to identify and or they resonate with you. Um, the life I've lived hasn't been full of ease. I've met adversity in spite of the challenges of my upbringing. But in addition to the internal resources that I will share with you today, 
I also want to inform you that my own personal faith has been the epicenter of my story as well. It has been what has motivated me as well to overcome certain challenges that I have faced. So for the next few moments, what I would like to do to you is to take one-word summaries regarding my life that has brought me from the saga's dysfunction to the ability to function in this society and, and to um, persevere uh, though challenges continue to exist. Is that okay? All right, so what do I want, what are some of the key elements that I've come to recognize that were pivotal towards helping me persevere through adversity? The first one is awareness. Awareness. I became aware of the dysfunction in my home between the ages of eight and 10. I was around eight to 10 years old when I began to recognize something ain't right. It just doesn't feel right. Why is it that my mother is not responding to my questions when I'm talking to her? Why is she not lucid? Why is she not able to care for me when I'm asking her questions? Why is, why is it that um, she's not quite grasping onto me right now? Why is she off seemingly in another world? It was during this time that I believe my mother had her first psychotic break. Can I, I can recall the emotional difficulty and the confusion that set in, not knowing where my mother was, why she was acting so strangely. Of course, I knew now, of course, that the dopamine levels in her brain were elevated and several other chemical factors in her brain were running awry, but I didn't know it then. This feeling was further heightened by seeing her days later in a seemingly docile state in the hospital that she was being treated in. But it wasn't just her mental illness that swept through our home. My father's alcoholism, as mentioned before, swept through our home. It was equally as debilitating and also cascaded through our home. But it took time, however, time for me to come to terms with the disarray. It took time for me to determine what was normative, what was normal for me, what was normal, because I didn't have any external picture to measure against or to look to. Awareness in my situation took time. And so as I mentioned awareness to you, I became suddenly aware between the ages of eight and 10 that there was, some, a, there was a stream of dysfunction that kind of lulled through the home and I knew something just wasn't right. I couldn't put my finger on it, I couldn't, I didn't articulate it, I couldn't put my, I couldn't quite understand it, but I knew something wasn't right. Though the atmosphere was difficult, as I grew older, I, dis I discovered the elements that caused such behaviors. And I came to accept that more normativity is a moving target. So what is normal for me may not be normal for you. And normativity as a moving target, it is never simply something that can be cookie cutter like. It's not the same for everyone. Perhaps it is for you as well. Self-awareness, in my estimation, can only be achieved once one refuses to jettison aspects of their life that are unsavory or deemed problematic. So for me, my, my suggestion is awareness of the dysfunction doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye or that you try to shun it or push it away or say, that's not me or I don't want to accept that. But for me, it's come to the fact that, okay, this is who I am. Let me give it a hug. <laughs> Let me embrace it because it is the life, it is the cloth that I've been cut from. 
when I consider awareness, I think of the, I think of the, um, the short poem by Portia Nelson. It's entitled An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. It begins something like this. I walk down the street. There's a hole in the street. I fall in the hole. I climb and, and struggle to get out of the hole. It takes me a while. I finally emerge out the hole. I continue down the street. That was chapter one. Chapter two. I walk down the street. There's a hole in the street. I see the hole. I fall in anyway. It takes less time for me to climb my way out of the hole. I continue down the street. Chapter three, I walk down the street. I see a hole in the street. I walk around the hole. I continue on my way. Chapter four, I walk down the street. There's a hole in the street. I go to the other side of the street and I continue down the street. Chapter five, I take another street. The, my awareness is like that. It, it takes time for me to recognize something and to figure out what it is. And it may be same, the same may be uh, true for you. The first resource that I, want to, uh, that I want to share with you is that of acceptance. Acceptance of your situation. Acceptance of your upbringing. Acceptance, acceptance of your family as it is, not as you hope it to be not as you long for it to be, but as it is. It'll do justice to you. Or it will save you from, it'll save you from a lot of um, heartache if you can simply look at your situation and see what it is. Acceptance is also um, something that is negotiated, that must be negotiated in, in your life. Perhaps due to the difficulty of aging, ill family members, mental illness yourself, trauma from a wound. These are hard things to accept in your life. It can be said that you cannot choose your family, you cannot choose where you come from or who you, the family you were born into, but I would like to suggest to you that you cannot change the difficult situations you've encountered in your life, but you can accept them as the fabric, as part of the fabric that you're comprised of. In doing so, you're more apt to know, respond appropriately to similar situations in the future. So one of the scenarios that are oftentimes hard to accept, I think trauma is number one. I think trauma is a real hard, a real hard pill to swallow. I begin with trauma because we tend to minimize the effects that they can have upon us. As I mentioned to you before, I teach, I teach at a Bible college in downtown Chicago. And at that college, ostensibly, every single student there is training in order to go into some type of vocational ministry. And I don't have fingers and toes to count the number of times I've had students in my office sharing a wound, sharing some pain, or sharing some hurt in their life. Now, these are supposed, and I place them in quotation marks, supposed to be well-adjusted students who have answers to life's hard questions. 
and yet they struggle like every other human being. Outwardly, they wear their facades. Inwardly, they're in pain. So I want to suggest to you, you can never underestimate the effects that trauma have on your life, will have in your life. You can never underestimate why you would react. It's like an open wound. When someone touches it, you're liable to wince. Trauma can take many forms, not just the more noticeable forms like PTSD or physical abuse. Trauma can arise from things such as abandonment. That's traumatic as well. The second thing that I think is hard for us to accept is that of isolation. According to Judith Viorst, who wrote a book called Necessary Losses, and I could summarize her thesis as this. Every human being from birth undergoes a series of separations. Have you ever thought about that? That life is but a series of separations from one to the next to the next. So the first separation occurs at birth. You're separated from your mama. After that, you grow up, you go to kindergarten or you go to school, and next thing you know, your family moves. You're, there go your it's a network of friends. Then you lose a dog. Family member dies. You lose a community. And lo and behold, before you know it, you're, you're feeling this profound sense of isolation. I think that um, incessant removals from, from locations, relationships, and surroundings can be hard to accept as well and hard for us to adjust when we have to try to make sense of our world and, come and, and then progress through difficulty. So isolation can be a really, really hard one to overcome. And in tandem with this is a lack of community. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, I think that Western views of rugged individualism are overrated. I can make it on my own. I need no one else. I got here by myself. I don't need it. It's just me and myself. It's, it's this sense of rugged individualism that I think doesn't serve us well. All around the rest of the world, people live in communities because they derive great strength from those communities. And the same thing is true for you. With a support structure in place, with people who have your interests in heart, with people who long to see you succeed, you're going to need, you're going to have to figure out who that, who that community is, identify who they are, and continue to nurture those relationships because those will help you uh, get ahead. All right, so acceptance is number one. Um, I'm sorry, awareness is number one. And I moved into accept, sorry, I'm a little bit nervous as I mentioned. Let me recap for you briefly. Awareness is number one. Awareness. Awareness of who you are. You know, it was Immanuel Kant who said, "Supir aude, or know for yourself, know yourself. I would suggest to you that be aware of who you are and what comprises you, your background, where you've come from, uh, some of the things that make you up, your own family history. The second thing is that of acceptance. You've got to learn how to accept the experiences you have in life, to accept sometimes trauma, that you're a wounded person. Doesn't mean that you're, doesn't mean that you should be, you know, damaged goods, doesn't mean any of these things. It simply means that you're human. <laughs> Isolation. These are hard, it's hard for us to accept being alone. And the fact that from birth, we go from one separation to the next. Finally, that of a lack of community are 
can be hard for us to accept as well. These two items, awareness and acceptance, will help you, in my estimation, to really press through the difficult times that you encounter. Last but not least, um, I want to talk about the idea of perseverance. Perseverance. Knowing that awareness and acceptance are two items that are indispensable, that you must embrace, how then does one find the courage to push through challenges and flat tire, the flat tires of life? How do you, how do you overcome these, these real difficult situations that really deflate you? I would suggest to you that a certain amount of stubbornness accompanies those who persevere. A certain amount of resilience is necessary. A little stick to is necessary. Because you're challenged, you're, our generation tends to be challenged more so than previous generations with resilience. If something doesn't go your way, well, you just quit. Just give up. Do something else. I don't really believe that this generation is more, has, a, has a greater propensity towards quitting than previous generations. I, I, just, I just find that we, we, we weigh our options and we try to sometimes take an easier route as opposed to digging our heels in and really going after what we, what we really want. For the last four years, I've been involved in doctoral studies. And during my first year, as I was trying to figure out the methodological schema, or the method that will help me answer my big research question that I'll write my book on, I was looking at Wikipedia to figure out a fellow, this fellow named Michael Halliday. Michael Halliday is a linguist. And outside of somebody, say, like Noam Chomsky, who's another very famous linguist, Michael Halliday is probably the most famous linguist in the last, uh, last hundred years. He coined the phrase systemic functional linguistics to see language as doing something. Language accomplishes something. And in trying to articulate what this method is all about, I didn't realize that I looked on Wikipedia and I wound up copying verbatim what it exactly was. Several iterations of a paper I was writing later, I didn't even realize that I had literally taken and plagiarized the Wikipedia page. Oops. How many of you have ever done that before? Oh, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It sure enough happened to me. It is the one thing that makes professors, myself included, wince when we find out that some work is not your own. Well, I, I, I tried, to, I tried to, to, you know, to brush it off, to go to my professor and say, hey, look, you know, plagiarism to me has a degree of intentionality. I didn't intend to, 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 to pull it over your eyes. I didn't intend to deceive you. I just failed to cite well. Well, long story short, it, 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 it didn't work out anyway, and I wind up getting a C in the class. And in doctoral studies, C's just don't cut the mustard. You like that? C, Troy, C for cut the mustard. They don't cut the mustard. You've got to take the class again. Now I'm thinking to myself, get out of here. here. Here it is every single week. 
I fly from Chicago to Toronto to fail a class? I come back home every single week to teach at my own college, twice, three-hour lectures during the week, and then every single week for two years. You mean to tell me I've dedicated this time, my energy, only to fail this class? Oh, I wanted to quit. So this is too much. Thousands of dollars spent in airfare, sleepless nights. You ever notice how you do those, uh, those all-nighters and you're just not the same for like two or three days later? Yeah, I lived on, I, I, think I, I, think I, I think I really had a couple of caseloads of five-hour energy during those years. But I wasn't ready to throw in the towel. Has a scenario like that ever happened to you? Where you were trying your best here at school, doing everything you could to come to class, to be there on time, to do the work, to read the book, to turn the paper in, and you still failed? Or, or didn't get the grade that you longed for? Make you want to quit? Mm -hmm. Me too. In an attempt to earn your education, you sacrifice all of these things only to fail. It is disheartening to say the least. Nevertheless, you have to begin to see the value, the merit, the worth in striving. I think that persevering will ultimately yield preservation. Preserving you, sustaining you, to help you realize your goals. And it demands a dogged stubbornness. A dogged stubbornness. According to a December 2011 article in Psychology Today, in another, in another life, I wanted to be a psychologist, but it didn't work out. That's what my wife is, <laughs> or she's studied. According to this article in Psychology Today, dopamine is the fuel that keeps people motivated to persevere and achieve a goal. You have the power to increase your production of dopamine by changing your attitude and behavior, to see your situation as an opportunity to strive. Also knowing that the reward molecule is being linked to forming lifelong habits such as perseverance. Neuroscientists have known for years that dopamine is linked to positive behavior reinforcement and the ding, 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 jackpot feeling of when you accomplish a goal. Recently, they have also discovered the specific receptors that link dopamine directly to the formation of good and bad habits so it can help you um, break bad habits like to quit smoking or any addictive behaviors that are involved therein. You need to persevere because once you achieve your goal, the rewards could be euphoric. Yeah, I took the class again. Yeah, I hate that I had to do it. But I learned something about it. Guess what? I sight really well right now. I sight real good. I don't let a, uh, <laughs> I sight everything. I give credit where credit is due, and so should you when you're writing your research. These three items that I share with you uh, today those being awareness, acceptance, and perseverance are all are three factors that at least have been part of my personal story that I share with you. And my journey has not come to its conclusion. I continue to make 
withdrawals from this from these resources as I as I press on. And I think that you should as well. Because it won't get any easier. And if the goals you want to achieve were easy, you would have already had them by now. Last time I checked, they don't give away degrees. You've, you've really got to earn them. That is my story. And uh, it reminds me of the importance of looking at my story, writing it down, and having it before me, because it is, um, it is essentially my way of making sense of the world that I, that I, inher that I inherited. I did grow up with a very difficult situation, but these elements have helped me um, to overcome some of the challenges that I continue to face. I also have a wonderful wife, so <laughs> she helps me every long, all along the way. Yeah. Now let me just take a few moments and just share with you what I've just, what in my own theory, how language works applying my theory by Michael Halliday to what I've just shared with you. So this guy Halliday creates this view of language as accomplishing something. He calls it a functional approach to language. And you're like, yeah, of course, language does things, right? It accomplishes things. And I say, yes, of course it does. But looking at my story, I took it and I picked it apart. And I looked at the various functions embedded in it. Michael Halliday sees that at every level, within sentences and clauses, there are functions that can be ascertained. He calls them metafunctions. He sees them as bigger-than-life items that can help to create, um, that can help to ascertain different sociological elements and can help us frame how we use speech in different circumstances. For instance, if I say once upon a time, you automatically know I'm going to tell a fairy tale. And these certain cues oftentimes begin to help us choose what words are at our disposal in order to fit the context. I've chosen certain words of persuasion today. And the big idea that I've tried to do with you today and applying my own personal and applying the theory I'm studying to my own personal story is that I've tried to be persuasive toward you in persevering in the face of difficulty. Persuasion has been the broadest, the broadest scheme. It is the field of discourse from which I am drawing from. I've used terms such as alarming, recalling, awareness, acceptance, and perseverance. And these all belong to semantic domains of mental processes where the process of sensing is paramount. My use of these terms and the way I've arranged them indicates that according to Halliday, Mental clauses are concerned with our experience of the world and our own consciousness. Thus, initially, the ideational meaning of my talk contains a high degree of mental transactions. I've taken my own personal goods, and I've shared them with you. There's a second big function in language, and that's an interpersonal function between audience and between giver and receiver. With a high degree of direct address, first and second person personal pronouns and direct address, a high degree of indicative verbs. I've been able to share with you on a level that has sought to express my judgment on or attitude toward the content of this message. I've also shared with you a high degree of relationability in sharing my own story and divulging even personal effects and anecdotes that I've encountered. And the last piece is that of a textual function. 
The means by which I have shared this with you is both in print and verbally. I've attempted to share this information with you to be persuasive and informative. Hence, it was my goal to allow you to peer into my personal history, the anecdotal episodes, and finally, as I share, as I close, an allegorical metaphor in order to persuade you to persevere in the face of the adversity you have faced and will face in the future. Let me end with this whole thought of the life cycle of a salmon. Why is, why is it necessary to persevere? Because all beginnings are hard, and you really need to persevere because in order to reach your goals, uh, you, you have to go, you ostensibly need to go through the difficulty. So have you thought of, ever thought about a salmon before, the life cycle of a salmon? No? You don't watch enough National Geographic? Anybody watch National Geographic? Animal Planet? Sometimes. All right, fine. I guess I'm that nerd. Um, I enjoy watching the life cycle of a salmon. Salmon start off in some ubiquitous stream somewhere in Alaska where they start off as fertilized eggs. Two adult salmon come, they spawn, they, they embed their own larvae into the gravel, into the, into the streams somewhere far inland in Alaska somewhere, for the most part. Once these, once these small fish emerge from their, from their eggs, these fish spend another month or so growing in size. They grow to about an inch. And then, not having any external pressure, some innate, something internally demands that they begin to swim downstream. They travel downstream and finally make it all the way to the ocean. There, between 12 and 16 months, these, these salmon quadruple in size. They build mass. They get big. They're in the middle of the ocean, and so they, so they grow to great length, some of them up to two, two feet long or longer. After the time that they spend in the ocean growing and amassing weight, there it is again. Some innate quality, something in their brain triggers them and tells them that they need to reproduce before they die. And so they travel back to the same waters that they were spawned from, that they were birthed in. But this time, the journey isn't so easy. Because last time, they, last time they were swimming with the stream, this time they have to go against the stream. Not only that, but in swimming upstream and mustering the energy to go against the grain, they have to dodge, they have to dodge natural uh, enemies, bears that sit perched on rocks longing to snatch them out of the air, birds that are looking to grab them and make a nice meal. Not to mention fatigue. They just say, forget it, I'm done. I'm just going, Ooh. Those that are successful make it all the way back to the same water that they were birthed from, and they're able to reproduce. Same thing is true for you. You were born in your environment. You had a loving environment, or the best environment, the environment that, that, that our creator was able to place you in. And from there, you had things cared for. Your life was cared for. Food was cared for. You decided you wanted to go to school, so you went downstream. But something clicked. You knew that you wanted to accomplish something in life. As you began to grow, you moved out of your parents' home. You decided you wanted to go to school. 
it wasn't easy getting back upstream or earning the degree wasn't easy. It, it, it demanded that you had to go against the grain. It demanded that you had to swim upstream. There were all kinds of setbacks that came at you. But in order for you to meet your goals and persevere through the adversity, you've got to swim up those difficult streams. You've got to meet them head on. You've got to accept the challenge that they bring because there's value, there's worth, there's merit towards persevering to the end. Thanks. I want to pause for some questions. Should you have any? Love to be a resource to you. Yes, what's your name? James. Hey, James. So with, so with your, the anecdote you gave earlier with the street, mm -hmm. to me it sounded like it was almost similar to the stages of Davda, to where she felt like that she died and then was the anger, the depression, and then she was slowly able to accept it. Yes. So with that, with that whole, do you feel like that between those two, you can fill it and then also continue in a sense? Filling it, I'm not so sure if it'll ever go away. I think of the whole as the trauma or some pain or some difficulty that is simply there. It may, it may serve a purpose to remain there, to keep you aware of it so that you can know to avoid it and or know that it's always there lurking. But it, it, it does take time to accept that it is there, the pain, the depression, and go run the emotional gamut before you're able to then make a choice of overcoming it. Anything else? Other questions that people want minute to process the talk <laughs> before <laughs> questions are coming in. Take, it, take, it, take some time. We've got some time. I'm cool. I always, in class, I always know that there's like at least two minutes or so before they go up. Yeah. So. <laughs> Why not, James? Yeah. Why not? So with your mother going in and out of you know, her lucidity and mm -hmm. your father dealing with his you know, alcohol addiction. Correct. How did this affect you mentally, you know, growing up with childhood being a very important part of the developing process and moving forward? Was it hard for you um, more socially than it was emotionally or mentally? It's a wonderful question. The question he posed was, how was well, my, father schizophren my, my mother schizophrenic, my father and his alcoholism, how did it affect me? Um, I, I believe at one point, I, um, I acquiesced. I just kind of gave in to say, if this is the cloth that I'm cut from, then I suppose that I'm destined to do the same thing. And so during my formative years of, say, high school and beyond, just beyond high school, you know, I kind of engaged in some reckless behavior myself. And... Um, decided that, you know, since this is the environment that I was cut from, this is what's normal, so this is what we just do. 
Um, so that, so that didn't, I tended to socialize with those who were like-minded. Um, but it was, it was after I was able to separate their own personal story from not necessarily being my own or that I was fated towards being like them or having, or like, particularly like my father or my mother's situation. Well, both of them, I would imagine, are both, meant, are both can be hereditary. Um, but it was at the point when I decided that, okay, the quality of my life, I wanted to be different. It was that awareness that I came to that I wanted to have a different quality of life, um, that I was able to place those, place their different, their, their dysfunctions in, in perspective. Yeah, that was my own, my own personal faith is, is a huge part of my story. My own personal faith, my own personal convictions is a monumental part of my story. Um, I had a community of friends in high school that embraced me. My best, friend's, uh, my best friend, his dad was a pastor too, so I always found myself in church. And um, I always gained great insight and clarity upon life. I gained bigger, broader views of what life can be like, the potential to have a better life than one I was experiencing due to that. Yeah. Where are you? Oh. <laughs> With the advancement in medicine, um, did your mother finally get the right medications to help her? You know, the antipsychotics that she was on evolved. I think the current one she's on right now, I don't know the name off the top of my head, uh, is one that has stuck with her, Geodon. But I, I'm not so sure that, it's, I know that there's always advances that are being made there. So um, it's always a mixed bag with trying to find the right, I hate to use the word, the term cocktail, but the right, the right balance for her was always a, a struggle. The one that she's on now seems to be one that works really, really well and limits the amount of uh, triggers or episodes that she has. Yeah, definitely. Her story is also different too because she has a faith commitment as well. So I think that has been a major function, a major um, support to her as well, is that um, prayer and faith has been a really important aspect for her. that where you are now in life, that you exceeded your own expectations in terms of a job, family, and everything? Yeah, um, I, I, I think that it's, I think it's nothing else that's helped me to have a sense of humor a little more. I never imagined that, um, I never imagined that I would, again, it was not in my wildest dream or career plan to be a professor or a pastor. I wanted to do psychology. I wanted to figure out how the brain works, why it works the way it does. And so yes, to answer your question, yes. I, I credit it to um, God having a plan for my life that I didn't realize in the moment. I just had to tend to interpret that plan in the rearview mirror. So I found myself going down a particular road only to look back and say, oh yeah, that's what I was supposed to be doing because I'm already involved in it. So that's the way I've tended to interpret um, where I'm at today in the rearview mirror. Yeah. So with linguistics mm -hmm. being the study of language, yes. and with everything you have been through yes. over the years, what 
what did you tell yourself through all these times? Um, what one of the questions we were asked to answer for our psychology class is that what words do we tell ourselves to help shape ourselves in the world? And with everybody being different, what did you use for yourself to keep yourself going and shape yourself? Great question. Um, even as I've taught for 10 years now in, the ac in an academic setting, there was a struggle with wondering I, if I had the, the goods to earn a PhD. So there was a, se there was a sense of, am I enough? Do I have what it takes? Am I smart enough? These people, the people that I've looked at and my colleagues that I interacted with, these were like brilliant people to me. And I had to come to the real, I had to then remind myself, so what was that mantra? I am enough. I am enough. I have what it takes. But that was a hurdle to come across. And, and perhaps you too, maybe thinks thoughts of self-worth or doubt or the, the doubting of, one's, of your ability. Can I really do this? Is it, you know, do I have what it takes? So for me, I, it was the, the idea is I am enough and I, and I can do this. But it was a big hurdle to come to because I was teaching for a few years before I thought, do I really want to do a PhD? Can I do one? <laughs> so, yeah. Since you didn't have a good role model in, um, in the father, what did you do um, in your life in order to really get that, get what you needed? Yeah. Um, did you have people in your life or what happened? What really helped you? What were some of those practical things that really helped you? Yeah, again, tied to my um, faith commitment, there were incredible men and women who made significant investments and modeled for me um, family values and the importance of making choices that would propel me towards having the future I want. And it, so it was, it was those mentors. Um, and again, I, you know, I've, I've had several at different stages of my life that were strategic in, the, in those moments to help me either embed some, some some true, some grit, uh, or and, and to help me look at the choices I was making so that I can make better ones, ones that have more long-term, long-standing effect, or that would be, that would that would that would serve me better in the long run. So to say, mentors, and these were people that were in my faith tradition. These were Christians who really invested their time and energy in me, and helped me to see um, the the value in making good choices. Those that would help me live the life or receive, achieve the life that I wanted to live. Other questions? Um, Ernest, yeah. do you see a connection between, or what, if any, connection do you see between the story you've shared with us and your field of study that you're in? In terms of the motivation to study linguistics, do you see that as being tied in with your personal history in some way? That's the process that I'm on right now. This is the opportunity. This was the opportunity that I had to really investigate that, to apply that methodological schema to my own personal story, to pick apart the clauses that I wrote down, 
and to begin to look at certain verbs that I chose. To, what, was the, what was in particular, what could I use from the smorgasbord of words to tell my own story? That's essentially what my linguistic study is about. And the same thing is true for you. So to, to make it simple, what is at your disposal to help you operate in the given context you find yourself in? And so for me, in a talk like this, knowing that an audience would be in an academic setting at a library at a community college, I chose terms that I knew would function well and be persuasive. So that's, that's part of that story that, I, that I've been really fascinated with. And as I'm reading several dissertations on language and language theory, um, that's been the most intriguing thing. Um, I'm going to take the same model and apply it to an ancient text, which um, will help me to see what was going on in the community when it emerged when that document came out. Sorry. <laughs> See, it's one of the things I wanted to change when I asked to come was to not make it all about my theory because it, woof, it just, it, it'd, be so, it'd be so out there that it would not connect. And so I wanted to try to distill the really important parts and share those pieces with you. Um, and language and linguistics is one of those things that really intrigues me now. So when you were talking about your students earlier and that, you know, they see that they would seem to have the answer to all these hard questions, but when they came in and shared, they seemed just like a normal human being. Mm -hmm. What were you picking out out of whatever th what they were telling you and what you picked out? Could you apply, you know, a theory per se, per se with what they may be going through on a more maybe a deeper level that they, that they haven't come to terms yet? Might, might be, if I'm understanding the question correctly, it might be the sense of a, an unfortunate. I, I, I was terrible at writing that. Yeah, no problem, no problem. If I'm understanding you correctly, what is it that I was able to pick out in my students that came with me with these issues, difficulties, that um, if I could pinpoint it, I, I would say that it would be, there is this perception that if you're in a religious field, that life's ultimate and difficult questions should be answered. And if you're not able to answer, if you personally are not able to answer, if they're not answering the ones that you struggle with, then something could be quote unquote wrong. When in fact, I, I would push back and say, no, that just kind of makes you human. And so for me, I think it would be the lack of acceptance. Sometimes the papers were not as personal in nature. I don't teach, I, I, I used to teach an ethics course, but I don't teach that course anymore where they had the personal nature. But now um, their, their work is far more technical. They have some moments of reflective thought, but it's not necessarily on a personal level. I'm looking to see how well they apply their, 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 tool, their tools toward looking at various texts. So to answer your question, unless it's, of course, something like a journal or something that I've asked them to be reflective upon or a blog or things like that, then there's far less time for me to interact or critique or take a look at the way in which they share personal stories.
Yeah. Interestingly enough, one of the things I did do, the same Bible college that I now teach at, when I was 24, I enrolled, and I was going through difficulty, and I was working at UPS, and I was on the night shift, and I would come home at 6 a.m. from the night shift and then shower and then go to class. Well, lo and behold, I wasn't fresh for the day. My mind, I was already halfway through my day. My first semester at this school, I failed every class except one. Every single class I failed. As a matter of fact, I failed so bad that um, the GPA I came out with, with a, was a .881. It's burned in my brain. I didn't have a one in front of it. It was a .881 GPA. The school gave me the boot, said, get out of here, kick me out. I had to reapply. I reapplied. I got back in. And from every, every semester onward, um, I fought tooth and nail in order to raise my GPA. I didn't really graduate with stellar GPA. I wasn't an A student. There's a misconception that your professors and those who teach are the smartest people in the, earth, in the world. No. There's, there is something in terms of work ethic. They work really, really hard. Trust that. Really, really hard. But that doesn't mean that everyone's, I wasn't the smartest person. And I didn't graduate with an A average. As a matter of fact, I graduated with like a B minus average. Um, but I managed to graduate and, uh, from the same school and went on to get a graduate degree. And, and now I'm earning another graduate degree. Other questions? How are we doing? Anybody else? Yeah, persevere. If you fail a class, use it as motivation. I was motivated after I got kicked out. <laughs> was motivated. Okay, I think, I think that's it. So thank you again very much, Ernest, for coming. And thank you for having me. Uh, I hope that I've been a resource to you. Um, if you personally have a story or something that you would like to share with me, I, I do love engaging students and helping them on their journey. Um, if you'd like to email me, uh, you can email me at ernest.gray, E-R-N-E-S-T dot G-R-A-Y, at moody, M-O-O-D-Y dot E-D-U. Ernest.gray at moody, M-O-O-D-Y dot E-D-U. Thanks, guys.